Um, we have been speaking the last few weeks different approaches to establishing the idea, the concept of God, um, things that confirm in a person's mind that this is the truth and so on. Uh, we spoke a lot about scientific points. Um, we spoke about things that make man unique. We spoke about morality. Now I want to move on to two more approaches that are quite different. Um, let me explain why they're very different. All the approaches we've taken till now tend to be kind of objective. It's an argument. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's something that is r reasonable, comes from reason. You can argue this way, that way, but that's the nature of it. The advantage of these type of approaches are that when things are objective, you say that um, you, you don't have an axe to grind and you're not imposing your own subjectivity, etc. The flip side is, like we mentioned <coughs> quite towards the beginning, um, things that are not really you are um, pleasant to debate academically, but they don't have the level of um, th they don't have the level of personal intensity and passion that something more personal has. The Kuzari, in a sense, is the first one to touch on this. When the king of the Kuzari brings in the Christian, the Muslim, the philosopher, and the Jew to interview them about their religions, um, the Jew is asked, well, um, what do you believe in? And they answer, we believe in, or he answers, we, I believe in the God that took us out of Egypt and uh, freed us and brought us to Israel, etc., etc. And the uh, Kuzari king makes a real sour face and he says, well, I, I guess I was right in, in thinking twice about inviting Jews because I've never heard a more poor theology from anyone. What about the God who created the world and is the master of everything and knows, knows the role, etc.? Why don't we start with some sort of grand scheme of the divine instead of telling us about your personal little mofsim, etc.? To which the Chava replies that if someone comes and would tell you about the great king of India. In those days, India was further away than Mars is today. Probably took longer to get there when we got to Mars, and probably a lot more dangerous. And so India was kind of uh, the other world. And if somebody were to tell you a lot of wonderful stories about India, uh, w would you believe it or not? And the answer is, any reasonable man would, would have a healthy dose of skepticism. Yes, possibly true, possibly not true. But let's say a person... Um, let's say you got a letter from the king of India with a lot of wisdom in it and you got all sorts of wonderful gifts etc and um, he gave you medications that were very helpful and all sorts of armaments that were helpful would you, what would your relationship be then and to which the answer is well I, I would definitely feel I'm talking about something concrete and it would be a much more a tangible relationship so he said well it's the same thing if we start, if the theology starts with a sweeping command of God in His greatness and so on and so forth, then it's very nice. Uh, we can argue this way, we can argue the other way, we can theology. I, I personally always get a kick when 
um, sometimes you read in a book that this is a very tough question. The theologians have solved it. We must consult the theologian. It's as if there was a science of theology and bright minds could ascertain facts and so on. It, uh, I mean, it, it just theology is a theory. And um, therefore, it, it's, it doesn't really lend itself to the word emis. A personal experience lends itself to the concept of emis. So if we start with God, we start with the personal interaction, which was the revelation. Um, we then extrapolate, God told us in, in, in his works that in the Torah that he created the world and so on and so forth, but our touching stone is that personal connection. I don't mean to go now into revelation. I, I want to talk about it in a more sweeping sense, and that is the God of history. Um, one of the aspects of um, Claudius Yisrael's function in the world besides their own need to improve themselves, to better themselves, and so on, the Pasuk says, Atem Eidai, you are ma, you bear testimony of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It's not only because we say the right things, and we have the right Torah, and therefore we say, but our self bears testimony to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Um, so the route we're going to, tr- we're going to think about now is God through history. Yes, history is much more subtle than talking about how the amazing, uh, complex uh, creations in the world. It, it's it's every every um, everything that's happened in history has happened naturally. It's a very very there are no supernatural events except for the Nisim and the flaws, which are past the horizon, the history that we can really tap into, it's, that's Torah. Um, but the history that's palpable to us is not, um, is natural. Um, there are no great recorded miracles, but it's not natural. And for the person who's honest with himself, and because it's a more personal thing than dry facts, um, it's a, it's, it, it is a very strong and powerful tool for discovering a Baruch Hu. So let's start a little bit and um, point out some points about the the, um, the the history of Jewish people. I want to refer to um, uh, one of the great thinkers in the in the 1600s and um, beginning of 1700s. His name was Vico, V-I-C-O, or V-I-G-O. And um, he wrote works in philosophy and history. And one of the things that he posited strongly was that history has a natural cycle to it. And he goes through the different cycles of, of history. Um, the only one he excludes are the Israelites. Now, it may have been because he was Catholic and devout, but Israel's history doesn't seem to follow any pattern that makes sense in terms of history. Um, I'm not much more familiar with his work, I just know uh, some of the, the points that he m- talks about, but, and it might be just, it's a lip service to the Catholic Church, because Catholic Church considers themselves as descendants of Israel and the modern day Israelites. But uh, I think the point is very well made, and let's talk about it. Every nation 
starts at a certain place. Place is very important for a nation. Um, a place is what first defines a nation, a tribe of people that live together. Uh, modern day and age has reduced place because of communications and so on, but still every nation starts, its entity is um, to be, uh, that they're part of a nation and it prospers, it fails, um, and so on. The Jewish people became a nation nowhere. In other words, just imagine. Imagine a group of people that never shared any sovereignty whatsoever. Um, Yaakov Avinu came down with his kids and his grandchildren, a, a family in Egypt. Very soon after that, um, they were completely dominated and enslaved. Um, and now they need to become a nation. Imagine for a minute, let's say the black people in America, the African Americans, who were stolen from Africa, brought to America, no longer, 200 years later, none of them, they, they do not see themselves as a nation in any sense of the word. They see themselves as people commonly oppressed and so on, um, but it, it, they, they did not become a nation through slavery. They became um, an oppressed minority, people with grievances and so on, and they remain aggrieved people because of the fact that being black it's hard for them to assimilate and, um, and much injustice has been perpetrated. But how does one become a nation when for 200 years um, you never were a nation, you never had your own, you never had existence except as slaves. Where did you have the ability to, um, like, when did you get together and form this nationhood, this sense of nationhood, and so on and so forth? Um, rebellions, revolutions take a long time, and, and, and there was no time for that. Yes, Pinchas. I mean, but in, even so, even though they didn't necessarily have a nation, they were still one family. But the one family had grown to tens of thousands of people, each one living in his master's house. They didn't have, like, they weren't living in their own. They, everybody was living by his master and working very hard. Um, very hard to see the creation of a, of a national consciousness um, in, in that environment. And that's what the Pasek says. Lakachas goy mi of goy. The very simple Pasek. Like, how, do you, how does a nation come out of another nation? Um, it, it, the, the normal um, nationhood is people get together and being sovereign, they, they, put, they have their own little city and then they have their own little state and they have their own little country and so on and so forth. But this is unusual. Um, the, now, this, the, this event happened uh, about three and a half thousand years ago. Of that time, they then became a nation. They were in Israel. Um, 2,000 years ago was the last time they ever, ever um, were a nation in any sense of the word. They were not living their country. They were dispersed all over the world and never enjoyed power, independence, or anything like it. Now, um, the... the uh, Judaism is unique in the fact religions transcend borders. 
So you can have Christians in America, and you can have Christians in France, and you can have Christians in Asia. They all see themselves as Christians. They see themselves as worshipping a common God. They don't really see themselves as part of one nation. Um, technically, the Arab, the Islam, see themselves as an as a ummah, um, which I assume translates close to what ummah means by us. But the Arabs and the Persians and the Indonesians are not one nation. Um, nothing about them. They are. They all have one religion, but they definitely are distinct n- n- nationhoods um, and nationalities. The um, Jewish people see themselves as one people. There's a sense of identity that hasn't been there for 2,000 years. It refers to nothing physical whatsoever. And yet we still feel ourselves as one people. There's a very famous work um, from the Panavijarov when they had the Bayless trial, which was in the early 1900s, I think it was about 1911, a Jew was accused in Russia of, of, of blood libel, and they rushed and they and they hired lawyers, the best lawyers in Europe, to defend him. And the Panavizarov testified, I believe, or he sent in the reply. I don't remember which one. I think he actually testified. And they were going after statements in the Talmud offensive to other nations. And one of them was the famous Gemara of Atem Krim Adam. So the Panavizarov answered very sharply. He said, you nations, if let's say somebody in Bulgaria, a, a Russian Bulgaria would be accused of some crime, how many Russians would respond and rush to his aid? The Jews, one Jew in some village in Russia is accused, and Jews in America and Jews in England and Jews all over Europe are desperately trying to free him. We're called Adam in the sense of a single person. Um, even Jews who don't retain their religion, many of them retain a sense of peoplehood. Um, this is after 2,000 years where nothing, don't speak the common language, don't live anywhere near each other, and really have no trappings of nationhood. By all counts, we should have long ago disappeared. Um, I know you've heard it a lot, a lot of times, but if you just think about it, the Churban of, of, of the Second Temple and the hundred years that followed afterwards was destructive more than the Holocaust. Rome um, destroyed whatever it could and crushed it in, in a way that was um, simply Lahashmir Laharo. They, they, if they were very upset by all the little rebellions afterwards, and they made it their business, and, and Rome knew how to do it, that any sense of peoplehood and nationhood would be gone from it. We, um, and then the history that we have, I have here a, a, um, a, a book called Sefer Hadmos. It's written by somebody named Shimon Berenfeld. It was written in the late 1800s, I believe. Uh, no, it actually was printed in 1926. Now, it is three volumes describing all of the Jewish sufferings, um, period after period. What's, not, what's interesting about it is, he does not, he, he uses 
he, the material that he uses are Jewish. It was printed in Berlin in, in, in 1924, um, which is ironic. I, I'll tell you in a second some irony of this. Um, he, um, it, it, what the main material that he uses are Jewish piyutim and uh, Jewish uh, um, poems of sorts, um, kelmoles, and so on that were written over the centuries to mourn all sorts of destructions. He also, most of the material that he brings is first-hand material. It's 1,000 pages, on and on and on. He starts at Antiochus' times, and he finishes somewhere in the mid-1700s. He writes, I simply can't go on further because the closer it gets to our era, I just feel so involved with it that I'm emotionally devastated. He said, as I was writing it, I, I just, um, I, I, was, I became so wrapped up with the tragedies of generation after generation, um, I, I just, uh, I'm, I'm spent emotionally. He said, and I had thought, honestly, that within the last hundred years, civilization had moved so dramatically that the curse of anti-Semitism would be, um, would be gone. And then this incident happened, this incident happened, you have to understand he's writing it in the 20s. So the big one is still, on, is still not on the horizon. And he said, well, people explained it, oh, this was an isolated incident, this isolated incident, this isolated incident, but I just can't accept it. And um, basically it peters out. There were times when, w you have to understand, the Jews were concentrated in different places. And these places were ravaged to the ground. For instance, let's go back to a story we're all familiar with. Purim, I don't think anybody understands what Purim was. All of the Jews were in, under the dominion of one empire who had decreed, who had enlisted the entire empire to kill them on one day. This makes Hitler look tame. Hitler couldn't reach Jews in Australia, couldn't reach Jews in America, um, in, in the fringes of Europe, he was having a hard time, but um, but he did a very good job. Um, Achashverosh had everybody, and it, all systems would go, and there was a last second reprieve. As they went back, um, the Romans were very unhappy with what they felt was the, the, the national, even though the Romans kind of, once they conquered a the country, were nice about it, they felt that the Jews were stubborn and uh, obstacles to their peace, to their, well, what's called the, the Pax Romana, and made it their business, whether it was Hadrian, they, they, they literally ravaged any remnants of um, national, of anything that would be leadership, uh, peoplehood, etc. As Rome became Christian, and the Christians realized somewhere along the line, somewhere along their history, very early in the history, that the Jews stood in their way of their interpretation of the Bible, they, th their treatment of the Jews was merciless. And he listed on and on and on. I, I don't have, but let's just go through some highlights, I guess, or lowlights, if you wish to call it. Um, the Jews were concentrated in Western Europe, France, Germany, somewhat in England. And as the crusade started, um, they massacred 
um, and massacred. There were pogroms after pogroms after pogroms. And until basically, and then the Jews were expelled from France, Jews were expelled from England. In Germany, life in Germany became impossible for Jews, and they left Germany. And Spain became a haven. Um, Spain, it turned from 1391, you had the first set of Xerus um, against the Jews, attempting at forced baptism, coercion, and for a hundred years, it was non-stop pressure against the Jews, and this was the great concentration of the Jews. Um, the Iberian Pen Peninsula was the great um, concentration of the Jews. Before I forget, I, I, I skipped over um, another wonderful period. In the 1300s, the bubonic plague uh, ravaged Europe. Besides killing Jews, it turned the masses, all of their fury and anger and hatred to the Jews, um, it, it, to the, to the, against the plague that they were helpless to stop it, focused on the Jews as well. There always was a monetary incentive because a, a large part of it was always um, the Jews would have to agree to forgive all debts owed by Christians. This was a constant refrain in the wars against the Jews. And um, you had, it, it, besides the plague, probably destroying half of Europe, and the Jews suffered less losses. Um, our understanding is because of the superior hygiene, etc. They were ravaged through plagues and everything, and it was desolated. Spain became the center of the world for Jews, and you had um, the Spanish Inquisition. We have to understand what it meant. The Jews were given a choice to either convert or um, leave. Now, leaving Spain wasn't relocating from New York to Los Angeles. I, 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 you have to understand it. It meant they couldn't they take any money with them. They went to the unknown. It, it's like going to Mars. Um, what do you mean you go to another place? You have no language. You have no business. You have no job. It, it, was, uh, it, it was worse, in a sense. It was like we'd have to spend the rest of our life in Tajikistan. Do we'd, be, we'd be parachuted into the Tajikistan and made to fend, not knowing the language, not having any marketable skills, nothing. It was frightening, and many, many Jews converted and subsequently were persecuted for holding Jewish religion uh, under secret. And many, and, and many, many of the Jews that were expelled found a death either by unscrupulous boats that just dumped them on, on, on a barren island to die in the dry sun with, with uh, animals eating them up. Um, and a, a remnant of, span of, the, of Jewry ended up in Turkey and Italy and Amsterdam, um, and that was it. But you're talking about a blow to the solar plexus of the Jewish people. Spain was where everything was, Spain-Portugal, and this was one of the most devastating blows. Um, as the, the, uh, uh, the next great period of devastation was Khmelnytsky in the 1600s, when Jews had resettled in Eastern Europe, where they found a haven in Eastern Europe. And by the way, there was a little strange element that as Spain closed down, Another country named Turkey was just beginning to establish itself, or Ottoman Empire as it was, and 
they said, you know, it's a smart idea to have Jews here because Jews are very good for commerce and stuff. I think um, it, 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 it was the remarkable historical shift. Constantinople was um, Christian. It was the Eastern Church, and that's what Turkey was. It was one half of the Christian Church, and if it would have stayed that way, the Jews would have found no haven there. A few years before, they were defeated on a battle that was, you know, on the edge of a sword, kind of, and they were routed, and now it became a Muslim haven. And the Muslims thought it would be nice to have the Jews there. So, um, somehow, a window opened up miraculously that took in Jews, and Turkey became a very big center. Eastern Europe followed, and then you had one of the most devastating blows to the Jews in Eastern Europe, and there was Khmelnytsky. There was an uprising of peasants, of Cossacks, and um, they, by many accounts, they were, they were angry at the Jews because they were upset with the Polish lords who were mean to them, and the Jews were in the middle. Whatever it was, the savagery with which they butchered what by many accounts is one-third of Jewry there, which is pretty much the same proportion as, uh, uh, as Hitler. One-third of world Jewry was decimated. And, uh, and, and it's not only, you have to say something, when you lose that amount of people, everything is shattered. Your entire, the wind goes out of your sails. I mean, how do you face God when every third person you know is gone? And, and the way in which they were killed was horrendous. We have written records of it. Uh, there's a, there's a sefer slash book called Yvain HaMetsula, written by Reb Nossin Nata Hanover, who was a big, who was um, and he describes grueling, horrendously, horrendous uh, scenes of how they, with the savagery with which they butchered Jews, and it devastated Europe. And um, it, in its wake, it brought Shabtzi Tzvi, because this was a kind of desperate need to find some sort of messiah, to sort of give meaning to those sufferings. And Jews went through a lot of turmoil. They went through... Um, it, it, the, 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 the czars in Russia were horrendous. There was, the, in, in the early 1800s, the Cantonists, where they tried to take Jewish children forcibly to the army for 25 years and convert them. Um, on and on and on. Um, and the Jews somehow sprung back. The, the, um, let's fast forward it a minute to 1940. Imagine yourself, you're in 1942, um, sitting in the heart of Europe and thinking about the future of the Jewish people. Europe has been destroyed. East Europe, West Europe, the Jews have been murdered, period. Um, from from uh, Lithuania and the Baltic states through Greece and Hungary and Romania, everybody, by 1944, everybody was in a concentration camp, dead or very nearly so. The Jews in Russia were gone. Um, Stalin had a very firm grip on it. There was no mention of religion. Um, Anybody who taught religion to a child was immediately sent to Siberia, and many people didn't teach religion to children who were sent to Siberia. And um, the Jews, as a nation, as a nation, as a people, um, as a religion, was gone. 
America had many Jews making a living. It's it's um, everyone aspiring to be as American as they could, and Torah and religion were on the verge of being snuffed out. Israel had a laughable handful of dreamy idealists and um, and the Torakata. They had uh, impractical Zionists and impractical anti-Zionists, um, and that was it. There was nothing in Israel, nothing. Um, when people spoke about the Jews coming to Israel, and that would be a safe haven for them, you know, it's it's nice to say it now. Anybody who had any any common sense to him would have left his head off. Israel was zilch. Um, there was nothing doing there, really. Um, yes, there were, there were a lot of wonderful stories about the, the Chalutzim. Those are, those are myths, kind of. Those are, you know, those are, there are wonderful stories about people that had no, nothing to do with a country that could... And there was no real Yiddishkeit there. Yeah, there are wonderful stories about great tzaddikim. There were wonderful great tzaddikim. There was no Yiddishkeit growing up. The young generation was, uh, was disintegrating. The poverty, the hunger... Um, the the uh, hashpa from the outside. So in 1944, a person standing in the middle of Europe would have said, "Hashem Nasan, Hashem Lokach." God gave the Jewish people. God took them back. That's the end of the Jewish people. There's, there was nothing. Where, where where was where was there a hope of of a Jewish community, of the Jewish people surviving again? Um, you know, and nothing drastically changed. At by 1946. Um, yes, the Jews had been uh, slaughtered out in Europe. What was left of Europe was nothing. Uh, the Jews in Russia were under Stalin. Uh, the Jews in America were as assimilated as ever, and Israel was nothing. That was 1946. That was 60 years ago. Today, w- we have um, a, a, a blossoming of Torah and things that are unthinkable in the best of times. In 60 years, where did it start? How did it grow? What, what happened? Um, and how is it that for 2,000 years, I mean, you meet a third, you meet an Italian who came to America, and he keeps, he speaks a broken English, he speaks um, um, fondly of his homeland, he, he, you know, might like Italian food, and so on. His kids sometimes say, oh, dad's from Italy, the old country is this. His grandchildren do not know that he's from Italy. Same thing is true about Ukraine. Same thing is true about Spain. Same thing is true about anything. Um, there is no preservation of people. Everybody melts into America at the end of it. And, and that's the way things work. The sense of peoplehood is extraordinary. So let's reflect a little bit about the history um, that uh, of, of this tiny wisp of a people. Uh, my son was on a plane uh, a few years ago, my little son, for coming back from Israel, and he was sitting next to a man from India, an intelligent fellow, professional, and they were talking, and he asked my son, and he said, yeah, I'm guessing what religion is this? He's Jewish. Oh, yes, he's familiar, Israel, so on. And as the conversation going on, my son realized something, and he turns to him and says, um, by the way, in your estimation, how many Jews do you think there are in the world? he said, I would say between 60 to 70 million. And my son told him, maybe a tenth of that. And he said, impossible. You guys make too much noise for that. It's impossible that a nation of a few million 
would have any standing in the world doesn't just make any sense that the world is way too big for it. So, so let's look at the aspects that, of history that have that's unique. We've we started no place, no natural cause for us. It was a family that was forcibly um, molten into Egypt, and we arose as a people. Um, 2,000 years after we've been dispersed in so many other nations, and we've prospered. It's not as if we're gypsies that haven't been allowed to integrate into Romania or whatever it is. We, 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 um, we, we have all the enticement to integrate, and we're not bound to each other physically. There are Jews in Yemen, there are Jews in Russia, there are <coughs> Jews in Australia, <coughs> and there are Jews everywhere. We preserve the sense of it uh, for all these years we have been pounded mercilessly more than any other nation and the hatred really is inexplicable. The hatred of the Palestinians to the Jews in Israel is explicable. It, it, it makes a lot of sense. Whether we're right or, or they're right makes no difference. They kind of were in the area and, and I, I'm not, you know, I, I kind of, let's, let's forget any details. They're there, we're there. They want it for themselves, we want it for ourselves. Those, that's the natural arguments. Those are natural hatreds. But in, but, but in every single country that we were, in and out, and in and out, and in and out, um, the Kozari uses this actually as a very strong sense of uh, understanding Hashkacha. He said, the, 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 as the Chavar is explaining to the Kozari about Jewish nationhood and Jewish peoplehood and how important, how significant that's the central theme of Judaism, he says to one minute, then you're telling me that you people are basically non-existent. You, you're, you're, you are a, a, a shell, you're a dead body. You, you don't have a temple, you don't have a king, you don't have prophets, you don't have anything of all those wonderful things you told me about. So what are you guys? And he says, well, the situation is even worse than you think. We're not even a body that's whole. We've got an arm in one place and a leg in another place and so on and so forth. But then he adds something. I want to tell you something. In those grand temples that the other nations have built and are built to God, and I assume he's alluding to Christians because that was really the issue at the time, said God has never prophesied to their prophets and their temple has never been burnt and they've never been destroyed on account of sinning. In other words, their history follows a natural pattern, both in our unnatural successes and in our unnatural um, suffering, we see an extraordinary hand. It's very hard to think of the long history of suffering as being a series of unfortunate coincidences. And, w and, w and, and the persistence against to keep on that way, um, the, the persistence and the fact that we're here. After 2,000 years of not being able to defend ourselves, of not being in one place, of having, imagine you take a plant and you keep replanting it every year in another place. And in some places the wind lashes against it, in some places it's very hot, in some places it's cold, and it survives. Plants don't survive being moved around. Imagine you take a child, imagine you take a grown-up, uh, and, and he has to move every six months to another place. At some point, you become psychologically unhinged.
because um, a person needs a sense of rootedness. And for 2,000 years, we have not, we found little moments of rest, but no place where we could flourish um, as a people. Um, and we've been devastated to the point where anybody rational would have said, this is the end of it. Anybody watching um, Spanish jury, anybody watching West European jury as the Crusaders went and butchered them to the ground, as the, the plague devastated 50% of Europe and the Jews a lot more because of all the pogroms against them, as Spanish, as the Iberian Peninsula, Peninsula threw the Jews out to the dogs, basically, and from the great, beautiful uh, Jewish uh, settlement there, we were left with, with nothing. Um, as um, Chmelnitsky devastated East European Jewry and, and butchered it to death. As 1944-45, every single, every single faucet was shut where Jews were prospering, they were not prospering as Jews, as America, where they were more Jewish, they were no longer prospering, they were dead, and that was it. And we're here. And we're here and we're growing in a way that is unparalleled. It didn't take us a hundred years to go back, it took us fifty years to go from a nadir to what might be considered a zenith. Um, were, there any, were there any great miracles in the nature, in the, in the, in the type of, of Kriyas Yamsuf? No. But on a personal level, it's extraordinary. Jews command... I mean, do we want to say that the Jews have brighter genes than other people? Um, I don't want to go that way. I don't think, actually, that being smart is, is, is the... Um, description of, of, of Jewish people but uh, I mean the, the, the amount of I think the, it's like 30% of Nobel Prizes I mean you're talking about extraordinary numbers you're talking about numbers that are just off the charts in terms of prosperity in term, and, and, and um, in terms of accomplishments and achievements there's something unique about it and yet we keep going through the cycle of being despised of, of, of being um, oppressed and um, you know Israel is a country that whatever your political sense of, of the secularized movement is but the reality is it's a country that came into being 60 years ago with nothing going for it um, the land was physically considered to be unfit for anything real um, it was barren um, the people, it was way overpopulated. The people that moved in were helter skelter of different nationalities. Um, it would be nice to say that the Zionists had brilliant foresight and wonderful management skills. Having lived in Israel for 25 years, I, I, even stronger Muna, it's, it's hard to put it that way. But it's, a, it's extraordinary. Um, it has no natural neighbors. Uh, imagine America would be at war constantly with Canada and Mexico, and the nearest place where you could export something would be um, Italy. Uh, you know, the, the, the Israel is locked in on all sides by countries that don't do with it. it. It's got no natural borders, no natural trade, and yet it, it is flourishing by far more than the other countries. Um, it, those are really extraordinary things. The, the Pasuk says, Vinus knows Dor Vador, 
that part of um, part of the obligation of looking part of the obligation of a Jew is to look at the generations of history the the Pashat Shad Neposik is and that's the Pashat Shad Neposha is that to look and to see that Israel's fortunes go step in step and hand in hand with their Ruchniyistika um, relationship to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. I don't want to go into that because that's not the scope we're looking for. But to understand that the discipline of history also provides very powerful clues to the Yad Hashem. Rabbi Yaakov uh, um, Kamenetsky who was an extremely broad person, and history was one of the things that he um, felt was very important, told Rebel Wine when he started working on history, the topics and lecturing, that, I don't remember how many things he told him, but this I heard from Rebel Wine, that the, the key to learning history is understanding the focus on the Jewish people, understanding it through the fortunes of the Jewish people, now, it sounds very, very parochial, but um, as, as people who believe that the Jews have hashkafa, in other words, every nation deserves to have its time and its place, everything's a nivev HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and you know, we wish them well. But, if, if, but, but they all observe through lenses of the natural, and there's a natural flow to history. And, and you know you can build a model and it works well for most nations and where there are exceptions they usually explain the Jews seem not to fit any of it if somebody wants to see just like if somebody sees Yad Hashem in science a person can see it in history it's more vague and it's much more easier to argue well the Jews are more successful because since we were oppressed they needed to stick together they needed to this they needed to that so on and so forth and you know it, 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 I'm not arguing that one can explain one thing naturally, two things, three things, but if a person looks at the scope of history, it also is, um, it, it also is more powerful because for many of us it can be very personal. My own father was a survivor, and he was an older person when the war was over. He was a man that was probably close to 50, and I would sometimes picture myself looking through those eyes in 1945, 1946 at Europe, and asking himself, how can a person believe if Klal Yisrael and HaKadosh Baruch Hu's fortune are bound together, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, you know, Klal Yisrael can never go under um, because my name is on them, and just like I'm immutable and I'm eternal, they're eternal, well, What's happened, God? I mean, there's no way a rational person could have thought in 1945 that there would be a hemshech to Christ in the sense that we know it. Uh, you know, there might have been some people who considered themselves Jewish, but nothing. And 50 years later, um, it, 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 it's at its best. Um, on a personal level, uh, when my father passed away, he, when my father started his second life, he started from Bracious. There was nothing out there and it was gone and by the time my father passed away in 94 there were more people sitting and learning in yeshivas than there ever had been probably until going back to to uh, the great yeshivas in, in Bavl or you know the, in recorded history never had anything like it um, 
you know, it, it's something that is um, remarkable. The Rebbein Kotler started Lakewood, and he struggled to get his 10th Talmud. His t- I just met his 10th Talmud, who told me I was the 10th Talmud there. And, uh, well, actually, he had a group of Talmud that came, so, but there, there was nothing. By the time, uh, today, there are more grandchildren of Rebbein Kotler learning in the yeshiva then there had been Bachan by the time Bachan passed away in, 60, in the early 60s. So the God of history is a very important, it speaks to us because it's very personal, it's another aspect, it's Hashgacha, rather than this dry kind of, you know, uh, um, dry mathematical things. And, um, and for the person who thinks about it, it, it and, and, and tries to live through a little bit and, and go through these things, and get a sense of, of what it was like to be Kaisal at, at their ebb and at their flow and at their high tide and at low tide, um, it's really, it, it, it really makes a very strong impact on you.